We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. How often are we looking and expecting that the good of man will be found in this world? Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné. And today, we're going to be continuing our series called Into Narnia with C.S. Lewis. Today, we're going to be considering specifically his works, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and his great sermon that he preached, The Weight of Glory. The real question today for us to consider is the question of desire. What do we genuinely want? And in a way, do we want something that's worthwhile and noble? Seuss Lewis has right, really one of these just amazing, beautiful quotes from The Weight of Glory. And I want to read it just to begin our considerations today. He writes, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. So Lewis begins by, in a way, turning the question of desire on its head. It's not that Christianity is against robust desires, against human desires, in a way, Christianity presents it as though our desires are for far too little, right? We are toying around with earthly things when God wants to give himself to us. He wants to give us infinite, eternal joy. Uh, the Psalms often speak of this, right? Desires at your right hand forevermore. So what Lewis is suggesting here is that we need to foster, in a way, greater desires. Uh, he would often describe it's really sin and Satan that are the kind of anti-hedonists, the anti-pleasure, right? the ones who want to leave life um, drizzled out, so to speak, of joy and merriment and real uh, heartfelt desire and heartfelt pleasure. Right? It's actually God who wants to give that to us, right? God, in a way, is the great cosmic hedonist, right? Offering us not just temporary joys or immediate pleasures, but lasting joys that we can savor not only in this life, but in the next. So in this essay, uh, that is sermon actually that he preached initially, The Weight of Glory, uh, he develops this idea, and then he begins to think about the nature of our desires. And in doing so, he suggests in a way that we have a desire for something more. Uh, in Mere Christianity, in book three, on a chapter on hope, Lewis will introduce what has become known as the argument from desire. One of his uh, really great 
apologetic contributions, in which he says, uh, to paraphrase it, he says that if we find in ourselves desires for something more than this world has to offer, that that is good evidence that we are made for something more than this world. Right? As he puts it, uh, if a man is hungry, it doesn't mean he's going to find food. If a man is thirsty, it doesn't mean he's going to find water. But it would be strange for a man to experience hunger and thirst were there no food and water. So in the same way, if we find within ourselves, and in some ways that we can see across cultures and across right literature, across the ages, we see a desire for something more than any experience in this world can satisfy, right? It's a sign that we're made for something more than this world. In a way, Lewis here is taking up an Augustinian theme of the idea as Augustine begins his confessions, right? Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So, let us ask then, in a way, what do we really desire? Do we really desire God? Uh, or, in a way, are we limiting ourselves? Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. He says that we're speaking now of a desire for a far-off country. Lewis will describe this at times as joy, a spiritual longing, almost kind of a nostalgia, but not just a nostalgia for the past, a nostalgia for the future. Almost like the time when maybe before the holidays or the time before seeing a loved one that we haven't seen in a very long time, uh, we so anticipate that moment uh, that no matter how wonderful the moment is, it almost never is as great as our anticipation. Because we're, again, looking for not just communion and reunion, but we're looking for a perfect union and reunion, a communion. In a way, a communion, right, that we believe is only offered ultimately in our reunion with the triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Lewis thought this desire for this far-off country is really one that kind of motivates and we can begin to see our lives as either seeking what is truly desirable, or as he puts it, as he says, we often, instead of journeying through the beautiful and the desirable things to glory and beauty itself, we stop at those objects. And he says, when this happens, the thing, when it is mistaken for beauty itself, goodness itself, he says, actually, they turn into dumb idols and they break the hearts of their worshipers. And we have to remember that it's not as though worshiping idols is bad. It's not as though it's breaking a rule. It's not arbitrary. It's just that when we worship idols, our hearts get broken because the idols cannot deliver what we are seeking. They cannot satisfy our hearts. Now, when Lewis is going forward in The Weight of Glory, uh, he has this beautiful moment when he says, in talking about this far-off country, do you think that I am trying to weave a spell? And he says, perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. 
Spells are not only used for casting enchantments, but also for breaking them. And he says that you and I have need of the strongest possible spell because we have been under the evil enchantment of worldliness. He says that almost all of our education and the philosophies of the last couple centuries are focused on this belief that the good of man is to be found on earth. Now, Lewis considers, of course, this as an evil enchantment of worldliness, that the good of man, the good of human beings, the good of human heart, that is actually something beyond this world. Uh, If we've been created by a God, then our ultimate happiness has to be in somehow returning home to him. So what Lewis does then is then he looks at Scripture and he sees in Scripture you see all these promises of glory. And he says, wait a second, these promises of glory fulfill what I was seeking naturally. Uh, So the revelation of grace and promise of glory super abundantly fulfills our natural desire for God. And when he looks at this, he begins to think about the idea. He says that glory initially for him meant either um, shining like a light bulb, which seemed very unattractive, or kind of earthly glory in which we want to be famous. But there again, he says, when he looks at what glory is presented in his scripture, he considers glory not so much as kind of shining, but as splendor. Uh, It's the splendor of nature that somehow would be present in us, right? The splendor, the glory of a sunrise, of a sunset, of a great mountain. That if we are creatures, then we too could, by God's grace and healing, share in that splendor. And secondly, when he thinks about glory as fame, he says that let us not think about being our desire to be famous before others, just before other human beings. But what about if we thought about we have a natural desire fulfilled in grace super abundantly to be famous before God, to hear from our Father, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful son, my good and faithful daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And here he notes that there's a particular joy of receive of being famous before a superior, right? He calls it, you know, the joy of the inferior before the superior, the joy of the dog before the master, of the child before the parents, of us before God. So in this way, right, he begins to say that the promises of glory that we see in Scripture actually are things that can properly motivate us to seek through the world a good beyond the world, right? To seek through creation the good of the creator, the good that is only found in the creator. And of course, for us, the good of the creator that is only found when the creator becomes a creature, when God the Son becomes Jesus Christ in his incarnate flesh, so that through that flesh which manifests the true glory of God, ultimately in the resurrection, we see our journey home. It's interesting uh, that a lot of people forget that the weight of glory comes from a biblical uh, verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, St. Paul writes, 
For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul is counting us to set aside our the pain, the suffering that we experience in this life is momentary. The things we see will pass, but the unseen things, the unseen things of God, the unseen glory that God promises us, right, is eternal. It's interesting here. We can also think about Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 speaking about love when he says, right, love is eternal. Love never ends, right? So God's love for us and our love in God for him right, never ends. That's the real participation. That's, in a way, the journey of glory. So at the very end of the weight of glory, Lewis says uh, this kind of beautiful line where he says, we might think too much about our own glory, so let us think about our neighbor's glory. And he says, we have to remember that there are no ordinary people. He says, individuals compared to civilizations, individuals, human persons last forever, right? They're immortal. Civilizations will come and go. They, in a way, our lives compared to theirs, their life are compared to ours, he says, is the life of a gnat. He says it's immortals with whom we interact all day long. And either immortal or mortals, people that will eventually become immortal horrors to themselves and to others, or everlasting splendors. So he says, within this, let us have kind of joy. Let us have uh, this kind of merriment that is appropriate, that in a way it is amidst right gods and goddesses, uh, eventual gods and goddesses, or horrors uh, with whom we interact every day. Now, when Lewis turns to the Chronicle of Narnia that we're considering today, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. What I want to suggest is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is putting into imaginative, uh, an imaginative story the teaching of the weight of glory. Now, you may remember uh, that The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third in the order, and it's after Prince Caspian. In the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan comes in, the children come in, they become kings and queens, everything goes well in Narnia, the witch is defeated. In Prince Caspian, everything falls apart again a thousand years later. But eventually, through the faithfulness of right, Lucy, Peter, Edmund, and even Susan, uh, and Prince Caspian, Aslan right, uh, is able to restore Narnia. Narnia is restored. And then in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we kind of have the journey to glory, uh, they get in a ship, the the uh, Dawn Treader, and they go seeking the lost lords. And in a way, they go seeking, sailing across the ocean to the east, to the end of the world, uh, to what they believe may be Aslan's country. So in many ways, the voyage of the Dawn Treader is a journey to glory. It's a journey that along the way, they encounter false images of glory kind of counterfeit glory, imitation glory. And a lot of the different characters fall for the imitation glory and they have to turn from it with Aslan's help to discover true glory. Now, and of course, in a seafaring adventure, we can think about Lewis 
retelling the old tale of Homer's Odyssey, right, in which Odysseus journeys home, but on his way home, he has great adventures, uh, suffering, um, right? He has to show great courage. He eventually, even when he gets home, he has to fight with Telemachus' son to get, o- overcome the suitors. In a way, the Chronicles of Narnia in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is an Odyssean-like journey, right? They have seafaring adventures. Uh, the different adventures are kind of unique. They're, uh, you know, almost they're separable, but each of them are, interestingly now, a new kind of journey home. For the Christian, we don't journey home to the past. We don't journey home to our old home and make it new again. We journey in a way to our true home, right? Our true home with God. Lewis is always convinced, right, that our deepest identity is that we are, right, from God, for God. We are children of God. Uh, And in a way, we have to discover that we've in a way lost who we are. Are and we have to remember our true selves. So we journey all the way to the end of the world in a way to go home. You can also think about the journey associated with the voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? In the very title, the voyage, the journey, as we might call it. How it compares to Dante's Divine Comedy. In Dante's Divine Comedy, the pilgrim Dante uh, is lost at the beginning, lost in the wood. He has to journey through hell, through the inferno. Out of the inferno, he has to journey through the purgatorio, through purgatory, and then he has to journey all the way through paradise, through the paradiso, in order to come ultimately uh, with the assistance of Virgil and Beatrice and the many saints, all finally marry to behold face-to-face the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and the glorious Trinity. And ultimately, to have his will be aligned with the love right, that moves the sun and the stars. So the journey, then, is both a physical, a geographical journey to the end of the world, to Aslan's country in this, of course, imagined world of Narnia. But it's also a spiritual journey where we move from being alienated from God, returning to God out of hell, struggling with our sins in purgatory, and then ultimately united with God. And one of the interesting things about Dante's Divine Comedy is that in a way, the characters or Dante's own desire draws him to heaven because the desire in Dante is not his own desire. It's the desire that he received as a created uh, lover of God, right? God made us to love himself. And so our true desire is for God. But that desire is broken and twisted when we settle into sin, and it's wounded and twisted when we are struggling with sins. But the more we let go of the sins all throughout, say, the purgatorio, as the pilgrim lets go of the capital sins, the pilgrim moves faster. Uh, Ultimately, as the character goes into heaven, Uh, Dante describes the pilgrim Dante as kind of shooting up into heaven, uh, almost like lightning, going that fast. It's as if our desires, uh, if we could simply let, if we could set aside all the weights that cling us to this earth, we would leap up into God's arms almost, right? Uh, So 
we see then what Lewis is doing in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader by really diving into this notion of desire and seeing how we can become very confused in our desires. We can become wounded and sinful. Uh, we can desire things that will in no way make us happy. Um, and we can desire things that will actually, of course, make others unhappy. But that over time, with God's grace and in the story, with Aslan's healing and correction, almost it's interesting, almost every time in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Aslan appears, he corrects, he hurts and humbles, uh, as Lewis will write in the uh, one of the poems on the planets about the sun. Uh, he's always shaping and turning us so that we can be freed from these false desires, these counterfeit desires, to the true desire, the one that can only save us. Now, uh, what I want to do, I'm going to, we're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, I want to look at particular characters and episodes in the story in which we can see and discover more about what are the true desires that are in our hearts, and uh, how can we go about uh, finding them uh, refreshed, fulfilled, and ultimately, right, um, beyond our wildest dreams, you know, completed. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm just so thrilled to be considering some of uh, my favorite characters and my favorite scenes from Lewis. And these are scenes that I've used many times with people that have never read any of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I've, they've, they've never failed to connect. Lewis would somehow kind of describe in these scenes just perennial themes in a way of, of human nature, of human stories, but specifically also integrating them into the Christian story, showing in a way that the Christian story doesn't make us less human, makes us more human. It makes us able to actually connect more to the deepest longings of the human heart. So uh, with the first one, uh, we're talking, by the way, a little bit about used to scrub Lucy, and then finally reap a cheap. Eustace Scrub, right? Uh, Lewis begins the Voyage of the Dawn Treader uh, with this humorous line uh, in which he says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it, right? This kind of humorous expression of Eustace Scrub, who basically is a, a young uh, boy who kind of articulate or who kind of embodies the superiority complex of the modern world, uh, who thinks that everything that has gone before is bad and old and everything that is coming is good and new. Uh, in a way, right, all he can think about are, you know, battleships and uh, power, right? He's unable to kind of at the beginning of the story in a way to appreciate the rest of the Narnians or his cousins, Lucy and Edmund. 
All right, so so in this story, in a way, Eustace becomes a very unlikable boy. It was at least it's been suggested that um, uh, Lewis, in some ways, just drew on his own experience of himself being an unlikable boy, not being a boy who dismissed the myths, but just that kind of smugness uh, that 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 he himself uh, looked back and realized had kind of dominated his own education days. So eventually, what happens? is uh, Eustace, they go on to an island, and on this island, uh, Eustace wanders off because Eustace doesn't want to do the work of the other people. And while he's wandering away, um, he eventually wanders into a valley, and a valley, and he sees an old dragon in the middle of the valley, and he's right scared to death. But then lo and behold, he looks over at the dragon, and he sees the dragon puff out its last smoke, and the dragon dies. Um, Lewis even says that Eustace, when he saw the dragon die, stood there feeling superior as if he had slayed the dragon, right? Kind of showing how easy it is for us to become deluded with our own power. In a way, the ego is constantly at work, right? The ego, E-G-O, edges God out of the picture. Um, in a way, it edges us out of the picture because we fall into a delusional reality, and that's exactly what happens to Eustace. Eustace is described in the story as um, going to sleep with dragonish thoughts on a dragon's hoard, and lo and behold, he wakes up as a dragon. Now, for Lewis and for the medieval tradition, the dragon, the whole Christian tradition, right? the dragon is the great serpent. Uh, the great dragon and serpent uh, that challenged Adam and Eve in the garden that uh, will come back and make war on the lamb and uh, Christ and his followers in the book of Revelation. So the dragon, of course, is not just any animal, but the dragon is a symbol of sin. What does a dragon do in the great stories? The dragon hoards gold that the dragon doesn't even enjoy. The dragon kills and murders in order to satisfy a desire that's insatiable. More gold. The dragon can't use the gold, it can't eat the gold, but it hoards it. Right? This insatiable desire that the dragon can't stop. Eustace, when he eventually realizes that he's a dragon, it's interesting that Lewis says in some ways, right, that becoming a dragon actually had improved his character. Right. Now, how could this happen? Well, what Lewis says happened to Eustace when he had become a dragon is he began to realize that he was a monster cut off from human society. What he says is that he longed for community. He wanted to have friends. Now, the irony is that Eustace the whole time was a monster cut off from community, cut off from having friends so convinced of his own superiority over others that he could never properly be with others, so convinced of the superiority of the modern age that he could not enter into community and continuity with ages past. But by becoming a dragon, physically and literally in this story, he has to recognize that. And then he either has to decide to live as a dragon forever, and he could have lived on the island and um, right, eaten, I think, the pigs and the sheep that were on the island as the dragons could have before, or he could have a desire to return to 
the community, the community of the ship, Prince Caspian, um, and uh, Lucy and Edmund. And, and it's really that choice that he has to make. Right? And Lewis is always emphasizing that each human being has a choice of how they are going to live, of how they are going to respond both to their own sins and to the sufferings that beset them. In this case, as he becomes a dragon, it turns out he had had a ring on his arm, um, kind of like a bracelet that was on his arm, an armlet. And when the it was made of gold and it was strong, and so when he became a dragon, his arm hurt a lot. So he had pain that in a way kept him from somehow being happy as a dragon. And Lewis will say that at times, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Pain, in a way, reminds us that we are not as self-sufficient as we think. So anyway, eventually, now the problem is he's on the middle of an island and he's a dragon. So as a dragon, he can't fly across the ocean. And of course, you can't carry enough food on a ship for a dragon. So there's this great scene in which he realizes, in a way, that he is hopeless on human strength. Uh, he's often, right, will weep even though he tries to help out. But at one time when he realizes that there's something, if anything is going to save him, it's going to be something greater than he is. Right? And one night, Aslan shows up, the great lion. And the great lion says to him, right, let me undress you first. Well, Eustace thought, well, dragons are sneaky sorts of things and they have skin, so he would scratch off his skin. And when he scratched off the outer skin, eventually the whole skin peeled off and it lay there next to him. And then he was going to go into the water to bathe. Right? But the moment he went into the water, he realized that the knobbly skin had reappeared. So he did it again. He scratched it all off, ripped it off, and it was there beside him. And as he went into the water to behave again, he looked and his skin was all knobbly again. He was a dragon. He tried it a third time, right? I scratched it away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it was no good. The lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off, right? So what Lewis is showing here is that Eustace is, once he becomes dragoned, once he becomes mired in sin, nothing he can do can rip off the dragon skin. Nothing we can do can rip off of sin. We ourselves have become wounded, therefore we cannot heal ourselves. We, in a way, are tarred, and therefore any attempts to clean ourselves, we simply become dirtier. In a way, our ego is the problem, so whatever efforts our ego does will not solve the problem of the ego. What happens here is that Aslan is able to really bring Eustace to the healing. And eventually what he uh, does, Aslan actually takes up the boy Eustace after he's been cleaned of the dragon skin and he throws him into the water of the well. And right, Eustace is a boy again, he describes. The water there, of course, is akin to the water of baptism. It's also a sign of confession in a way. There's a great book 
G.K. Chesterton's The Autobiography of G.K. Chesterton. And in there, he describes at one point, he says, why, people will always ask him, why did he become Catholic? Why didn't he just stay an Anglican? And he said, because he wanted to get rid of his sins. He says the Catholic Church is actually the only communion that promises to get rid of people's sins, right? What Christ did in forgiving sins, Christ passed on to the apostles and to the bishops and to the priests to forgive sins. Uh, And so uh, Chesterton writes, and we know that Chesterton was a great, uh, anyway, was a a great hero of, of Lewis, but he writes that when a man comes out of confession, no matter how old he is, how wounded he is, how beat down he is by life, he walks out of confession five minutes old, right? A new child coming out just as if he had been created in the garden, right? And I think Lewis is really drawing into this idea that no matter how dragonish we have become, uh, no matter how wounded, um, beaten down by life and by ourselves and our sins, right? Aslan can rip off that dragon skin. Um, in a way, baptism and confession in Christ's name and in Christ's blood can restore us to, to being a child again, right? A child again of God. Next uh, image I wanted to look at is uh, two stories about Lucy. Now, Lucy, we know, is one of the heroes of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Again, one of the heroes in the Prince Caspian. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, certainly she's a hero again. Uh, But it's interesting, Lewis also shows how that she too struggles, not with mortal sins, but with venial sins, uh, with these tendencies in us, in a way away from our true desire to earthly desires, from true glory to counterfeit glory. Uh, We can think about the the seven capital sins. You can use the uh, mnemonic device pale gas, if it's helpful, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice, and sloth, right? These, in a way, even after baptism, after conversion, they continue to kind of distract and disorient us. Uh, There's a kind of a haunting scene where all of a sudden, Lucy's presented with a uh, book of spells, and she came to a page with beautiful pictures. And she noticed that one of the spells said, an infallible spell to make beautiful her that uttereth it beyond the lot of mortals. Imagine she began to think of herself as, right, the most beautiful woman ever, more beautiful than her older sister, Susan, so beautiful that wars would happen over her, right? Everything would be, everybody in a way would adore her so much Right, Susan, as she puts it, would be jealous of the dazzling beauty of Lucy, but it didn't matter because no one cared about Susan anymore. I will say the spell, said Lucy. I don't care. I will. She said, I don't care, of course, because she had a strong feeling that she mustn't. But when she had looked back at the opening words of the spell, there in the middle of the writing, she felt quite sure that she had seen the great face of the lion, Aslan himself. And he was growling, and you could see most of his teeth. She became horribly afraid and turned over the page at once. Even Lucy, who is often presented as a very pure, uh, childlike trust in Aslan and in the wonder of revelation or the wonder of God's uh, manifestation of himself in Narnia, 
Even she struggles with these temptations, right? To be human is to struggle with these temptations. And right, in a way, it's Aslan and Aslan alone that can heal her of them. Even not only does the nasty Eustace need um, Aslan, right? Even the beautiful Lucy needs it. Now, of course, one of the fascinating things that happens is that a little bit later, uh, she has to read a spell to make all invisible things visible. And all of a sudden, Aslan appears behind her. Um, and she writes this, her face lit up until for a moment, though, of course, she didn't know it. She looked almost as beautiful as that other Lucy in the picture. And she ran forward with a little cry of delight and with her arms stretched out. For what stood in the doorway was Aslan himself, the lion, the highest of all the kings. And he was solid and real and warm and let him let her kiss him and bury herself in his shining mane. Right? Oh, Aslan, it was kind of you to come. He says, I have been here the whole time. You have just made me visible. Right? But that idea that Lucy longed to be beautiful, but what she thought was beautiful was to be adored by others that kind of craving we have to be adored, that the ego needs to be petted, uh, and the ego sees itself in competition with one another. But what we see is when she recognized that her beauty is not in being adored, but in adoring. When she sees Aslan, she becomes as beautiful as she was when she was beautiful beyond the lot of mortals. Because actually, right, we are all called to be beautiful beyond the lot of mortals. The beauty in a way that kind of uh, the world falsely promises is the beauty that is offered when we can become, right, everlasting splendors. And so Lewis, just in a wonderful way, I think, uh, shows the contrast, the beauty that she discovers. There's one more uh, instance where Lucy is on a ship and they are go to the dark island. And in the, this island, they can't see anything, but they begin to hear that the island is an island where dreams come true. And they're so excited at first. All the sailors start rowing for 30 seconds into the island. They want the place where all the dreams come true. And then about as they get about 30 seconds in, they all of a sudden start rowing the other way because they start realizing where all the dreams come true means our nightmares as well. Our nightmares, our worst dreams, our bad dreams in which bad things happen to us and perhaps those dreams in which we do bad things to others. That's a dark island where we can no longer see. Um, Lewis loves dreams. He loves myths. He loves stories. But it's logos, it's reason that actually gives us truth. And we need light. We need reason to know the truth about the human person, even though we also need stories to help us make sense out of that truth. Well, so anyway, what happens is they're in the midst of the darkness. Lucy has this beautiful prayer, and she says this. Lucy whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little, a very, very little better. Then all of a sudden, a small beam of light entered right, and illumined the ship. But Lucy, as Lewis will describe it, looked along the beam. She didn't look at the light. She looked along the light. Um, Lewis has a whole essay called The Meditation in a Toolshed in which he describes the difference between looking at experiences and looking along experiences. He says, when we look at experiences, we kind of reduce them. When we look along them, we see 
the reality that the experience unfolds, right? Not looking at love, but looking along love to see the beloved, both in the other person and in God. Well, eventually she sees something that looked like a cross, an airplane. Eventually we know it's a great albatross, which is a sign of hope for sailors. And it whispers to Lucy, courage, dear heart. The voice she felt sure was Aslan's, and the voice had a delicious smell that breathed into her face. Courage, dear heart. Right, The sailors had lost their heads because of their fears. Lucy, amidst her fears, prayed. She asked for Aslan's help this time, not waiting for Aslan to come and growl, but this time asking for Aslan's presence. Aslan gave her light. She was able to see the truth about herself, to remember the truth about God, and in that sense was able to come out of the darkness. Now, the last character I wanted to look at is the character of Reepicheep. Reepicheep is a, in the Prince Caspian, Reepicheep is a martial mouse, a great knight. At the very end, actually, of Prince Caspian, he's almost dead. He's lost his tail. He's being carried on a bier um, by all of his followers and Long story short, um, uh, he's healed by Lucy's cordial, and Aslan eventually gives him his tail. He says, not for his glory, but for the love that his subjects bear him. So he's kind of almost died at the end of Prince Caspian and then rises again in this story. But Reepicheep is really the character in this one who is just desiring another world. He's desiring God. He's the contemplative Reepicheep. In many ways, you can think about Eustace as Dante's Inferno. Eustace is in mortal sin. He needs to be born again. Lucy is on the Purgatorio. She needs to be freed from these wounds of sin. But Reepicheep is in paradise. He is simply desiring God. Uh, There's a beautiful poem that he says was on him during his whole life. Uh, Reepicheep is that he has that desire for that far-off country where sky and water meet, where waves go, grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek, there is the utter east. And he says, I do not know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. We may not be always able to understand our desires for God. To a certain extent, our understanding is proportioned to the things of the world, and God is the source of the things of the world. So in a way, we will never fully understand our desires for God. We will never fully understand how God begins to make us his children in this life and how we can have eternal life with him in the next life. But nonetheless, we must, like Reepicheep, let the spell of it be on us all our life. Throughout the entire story, um, Reepicheep, in a way, is wise. Even at one time, he's able to overcome a dragon that's sinking the ship, a great sea serpent, And he says, don't fight, push. It's very interesting, of course, for a knight, uh, Reepicheep, right, who's very courageous and brave. He outthinks the problem, right? He, in a way, is at peace, and he's able They push the sea serpent off. Eventually, at the very end of the story, Reepicheep simply sails into Aslan's country, or I think he rows himself up into Aslan's country in a little coracle, a little boat. Now, at the very end of the story, Edmund and Um, Lucy and now Eustace, right, are there. And eventually they see this great lamb who makes them food, um, very right at the edge of the water. Uh, It's a very kind of explicit calling of Jesus in the resurrection, making bread and fish for the apostles. And when we get there, 
Lucy begins to recognize that the journey's over, and um, she begins to kind of be sad, right? Um, Aslan says to Lucy and Edmund, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy, both in despairing voices. You are two old children, said Aslan, and you must come begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Aslan, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. How can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But I there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here, a little, you may know me better there. And here, it's kind of one of those interesting moments. And Lewis said, by the way, when he was writing the Seven Chronicles of Narnia, that after he wrote the third, he thought they were kind of complete. Uh, and then he decided to write four more to kind of have another complete number of seven. But you see here, right at the very end, to a certain extent, Lewis tells you why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. All of the readers of the story right, are like Lucy and Edmund, right? What is the reason why we were brought to Narnia? That by knowing him there for a little, we may know him here better, right? That by knowing the incarnate Lord in Aslan and Narnia, or as Aslan and Narnia, we may come to know the incarnate Lord, right, as Jesus Christ in our world. Um, so it's one of those rare times where Lewis, who is usually very kind of hidden in his imagery and wants you to just experience the secondary world that he creates with literature and, and not pay attention to the fact that it also kind of represents or symbolizes another f sphere of reality in our what he would call the primary world of God's creation. Um, but 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 here he does it, right? At the end of the stories, he wants us to definitely walk away from the joy and wonder that we discover in the journey to Aslan's country, right? Uh, the trials of the characters, but also the joy and corrections along the way. Now, I just want to close by returning to this great quote we started with from The Weight of Glory. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I would say we should ask ourselves, how does the enchantment of worldliness impact our desires? How often are we looking and expecting that the good of man will be found in this world. How often, in a way, are we not looking for the true beauty and goodness and splendor of God, but remaining with kind of these images of it uh, that we find in human life, in, in other people, in activities or pleasures, not that those are bad. Those, are again, are part of the created order, but we must go through them to God. And we also must recognize that our natures are wounded, and they will 
they kind of, I don't know, they, they're like, it's like sticky tape. We tend to stick to the things of this world and we need to constantly peel them off in the same way, right? Like Aslan peels off the skin of uh, the dragon so that we can actually cling through them to God and God alone. So I would close uh, with asking all of us to think about what might we do to recover, to turn in a way from the evil enchantment of worldliness, uh, kind of counterfeit desires, counterfeit glory, to true desires, to true glory, the true glory that is found in Christ and Christ alone, right? The weight of glory, as St. Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians, and thinking about Christ's promises. And perhaps like Edmund, uh, let us be sure to leave behind and struggle against serious sin. Only through Aslan's claws, only through the redemption of Jesus Christ, and make use of remembering our baptism, practicing confession. It's fascinating that Lewis, though he was an Anglican, actually practiced regular oral confession, uh, like verbal confession to a priest. Like Lucy, you know, let us hear Aslan's merciful growls when we crave earthly adoration. Let us turn to him and discover our true beauty, right? And when we are afraid, let us say to him, come, help us. And let us look along the light that comes and hear Aslan. Let us hear Jesus speak to us, courage, dear heart. And like Ripachip, let us savor and remember those promises and prophecies from the Psalms and prophets from the lips of Jesus and hold on to them beyond our reasoning. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.